Hey guys, welcome to episode 93 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We hope you all had a wonderful New Year's and that this year, 2021, is everything that you want it to be and that last year wasn't for you. It's, it's just behind everyone now at this point, right? Yeah, 2020 wasn't too bad for us. I mean, luckily, um, we got through it okay. We did have some family members that were sick, but they're all good now. And I do feel like back in March, I had had it, but I had, I recovered. It did take three weeks though. So I remember being longer than that. Maybe I'm wrong, but it felt longer than that. It took like five weeks to be fully, fully recovered, but at least I could breathe after the three weeks. And then, um, I've totally, my taste palette completely changed. Like I, I no longer, and this is the saddest sentence that I'll ever say in my life. My taste for wine is like kind of gone right now. It's weird. Which is very sad because usually that is my favorite accessory is a wine glass <laughs> in my hands. Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to work my way back to it. So that's my New Year's resolution is to regain my taste for wine. <laughs> Sounds but, pretty good. Yes. Or it's others, an easy one. Others are just like, hey, you know, I'm just going to get back into a routine. I'm, I'm going to meditate go, more. Yeah, I'm going to go work out. No. Case is, you know, acquiring it, uh, reacquiring a taste for alcohol. Rediscovering <laughs> my whites and my reds. Yes. <laughs> um, but 2020 was really good for us because we bought a house. This was our strongest year yet with the quarantine. That's most likely because people had nothing to do but clean their houses and listen to podcasts. But so. we appreciate that and we love you all. And we hope that you continue to do that going into 2021. <laughs> Yes, and it was great to spend quarantine with you guys. So we're glad that we have that that time. We bonded really well. Yeah, we did. So hopefully we continue to spend time with you just without the whole pandemic part of it kind of put in there. So today our case is going to take us to the Upper East Side of New York City. During the summer of 1998, a famed socialite went missing and the man that was suspected in her disappearance was none of the things that he claimed to be. So join me as I tell John a story of high society, eviction laws, and how not to be a parent. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. So we've been doing the podcast for three and a half years now, and never has a person that I've done research on or read about come so alive in my mind as Irene Silverman. And that, in my opinion, is something that she would have been really proud of because first and foremost, she was a performer. Irene, standing at just five feet, was an enchanting larger-than-life figure. She was born in the city of New Orleans during the Great Depression as Irene Zambelli. She knew at an early age what it was like to be poor, hungry, and lose those that she loved. Although Irene was able to survive the Depression, she would carry battle wounds in the form of bizarre and frugal habits with her her whole life. But in reflection, Irene would tell you that she did not just survive the Depression. She thrived within it. In 1934, at 18 years old, she moved with her mother to New York City where she hoped to make a living as a dancer. And she did. 
During a time when competition was fierce and people were dancing to feed their families, not just for the love of the art form, Irene was able to earn herself a spot in the ballet corps at Radio City Music Hall. And during this time, a group of ballet dancers would actually come on before the Rockettes did. So they were like the the warm-up act for the Rockettes. And this is where Irene performed. It wasn't the spotlight, but it was close enough. And it's really because of her height that she was never able to become a Rockette because she was only five feet tall. So you have to be, I think it's like you have to be at least five five to be a Rockette. And then you have to be between 5'5 five, five and 5'9 five, because they all like kind of look pretty uniform. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know there was like requirements for that. Oh, yeah. And the kick. You got to do kick. the kick. But still, even though she wasn't a Rockette, her job was grueling. She danced in four shows a day, every day, 365 days a year. That's crazy. That is insane. That is a lot of work. I mean, that really just, I mean, that just kind of shows dedication. Yeah. Every single day. And to do it being a ballet dancer, because that is something that's physically grueling. So to do four shows a day, but then you also have to go to rehearsals and that's a lot of work. So she had a really exhausting job, but it did earn her $36 a week, which was far more than minimum wage for the time, which was only $11. During this time, she lived with her mother the only other family member who accompanied her to New York City. Her mother made extra money on the side, fixing or making costumes for all of the dancers. And together, they were able to get by just fine. But Irene had moved to New York City not just to be a dancer, but also for a better life. She had high hopes of meeting someone who would be able to take care of her, and her mother would never have to struggle again. And her Cinderella dreams came true within seven years of her moving to the city. I mean, that's that's a lot of dancing. I mean, seven years of dancing? Yeah. That's probably more than a couple people in a lifetime, right? I mean, unless you're in this sort oh, of yeah. career. I mean, yeah, I mean, who else? You're not just dancing in the street. I mean, you have to have <laughs> some sort of like uh, profession or, or job that requires you to do that, right? I mean. Yeah, I would I would say that the thing with dancers is that they don't really have too long of careers because there's, of course, always someone that's going to be younger than you coming up in the wings. But I mean, because she was in the ballet corps, it was she was able to have a little bit of a longer career. And she was I mean, she, she pretty much probably had to have the show down pat at that point. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, no I, mistakes. <laughs> I truly know nothing about dance, so I'm leaving it all to you. But I will say, though, I mean, it sounds pretty interesting. I mean, there definitely is an art and a technique to especially like ballet dancing, right? Yeah. I mean, the stuff that they have to do is actually insane. Uh, so I actually have I have respect for it because it requires a lot of skill to master. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's something easy to get into, but then super, super difficult to master. Yeah. So I respect any kind of either art form or uh, whatever dance or anything anything that requires physical activity i well you heard it first here john has respect for ballet dancers gotta, hey listen i i really do i mean I, I would not partake um in that because i i don't have good like I, you know not hand-eye coordination but like leg eye coordination i'm very bad hand-eye coordination i'm fine but yeah I, that would not be my thing well i'm sorry that you you're uh admiration for ballet dancers has to stop there and you can't physically partake in there in their uh dancing it's okay i'll watch you can I'll, watch it yeah i'll afar. watch from afar okay maybe that's what i'll get you for your next birthday 
ballet tech. Hey, my hey, my 30th is coming up. I could use some lessons, maybe. Yeah. That's what you want for your 30th birthday? To... John's no. going to perform a ballet dance at his 30th birthday. <laughs> no, 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 no. So, at this point, Irene had met a man named Sam Silverman. And within a year of knowing each other, they got married in 1941. Silverman was 10 years her senior and could offer Irene a level of stability and comfort that she never experienced before. She relished in the role of being a trophy wife, and she made sure that she was always beautiful and presentable for her Sam. But Irene was always able to maintain her true self, even though she was thrusted into this New York City social scene. And that was one of the many things that Sam Silverman loved about her. She wasn't like all of the other socialites in New York City. There was something fun and refreshing about her. And by all accounts, her and Sam had a wonderful relationship together. And they were truly in love. So, I mean, what more could you ask for? I mean, that is true. I mean, but I think that comes with who she is as a person. Because it's not like someone that's born into that sort of life where, you know, it's very uh, prim and proper. You know, it's not like that. I mean, she came from, you know, not having a lot, having to move from New Orleans, who that nation, if you're into football, um, moving from there to New York City. I mean, it's it's just kind of like uh, it's a totally different world. So she's coming from not having anything to now having right. something. So she, I feel like she's like in that in between where she can appreciate both sides of life because she's been to both ends. Yeah. And I think she's also able to really hold her own in the social scene because she has been on the outskirts of the social scene, being a dancer at radio city music hall, because I'm sure they had banquets and I'm sure that they had events. And that's probably most likely where she met Sam. So she does know how to hold her own with those that are the rich and famous, but she has always stayed true to herself. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. And side note really quickly, I don't know. I mean, we've been to Radio City Music Hall, but it is so odd because it has not changed in so long. It Those are still probably the looks, original seats. <laughs> you know what? It really feels like it is. I mean, it's so old and and like like a has like that like rustic feel to it. I don't know. It's just like it's such a sore. I don't want to say sore thumb, but like it doesn't match anything else in the city anymore because it's like time hasn't affected Radio City Music Hall, but the rest of the area around it has. Like yeah, it's it changed. changed. Yeah, but that sure. has not. So it's weird. When we went to Radio City Music Hall, we went to see Sebastian Meniscalco, and two rows in front of us, a lady peed her pants on the seat. Oh, yeah. I remember that. She peed her yeah, pants. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. That was uh, unfortunate. That was unfortunate. I feel bad for yeah. her. I mean, it was funny, so I get it. I understand, but... You know, well, you know what it was? The funny part was that... They brought someone else there, and they sat down. Yes. That... <laughs> well, that well that was one, and secondly... The um, we actually heard the sound of like water, the the pittering, yes, of pee and that was that. I I was like, oh my god, no way! That woman is peeing her pants right now. But I, you know, I kept a straight face. I I pretended like it didn't happen. She was looking around to see like if anybody like heard it or saw it or whatever. I just I I pretended that the uh, concert was uh, taking place right in front of us and that everything was fine. It was pretty mortifying. Yeah, I had a first date happening right next to me on the other well, side, that was, that so was that cool. was pretty in- that was pretty intense. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was there for their love affair i wonder how they're doing now (laughs) i don't know (laughs) okay sorry sorry so sam had gained most of his wealth through banking and owning a mortgage brokerage so he had a lot of money and he also had grown up with a lot of money so he 
was rubbing elbows with some pretty famous people. And Irene was brought into this this world. And he also kind of, which is adorable, brought her mother along with them. That is nice. Yeah, so he was always really considerate about the fact that Irene and her mother kind of came together as like one package because her mother was the one who supported her in her dream to move to New York City and become a dancer. And the couple also, as time goes on, they're going to have many lucrative investment properties throughout the whole United States. So Irene was always known to be someone who was so much fun. They are going to spend their time living their lives to the fullest. They were known for throwing lavish parties at their homes in the city, Paris, and Hawaii. Isn't that insane? Have you ever seen those houses around the Eiffel Tower? They're actually insane. Like, I mean, you're talking about the most beautiful properties I've ever seen because of the view. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would want a house in Hawaii for sure, but... But, I mean, those are like... I mean, New York City is known for, like, it being, like, the social scene, especially around this time. But then Paris and Honolulu, like... Yeah, that's cool. This couple was living the dream because you're having, like, the best of every world. You have this city, then you're in Europe, but then you're on an island. That's so cool. Yeah, super cool. So Irene always had a bottle of champagne in her purse, and that's what she was known for. And she was always ready to pop um, the cork upon meeting someone. So I I think that's a really cool thing. That is cool. I want to be known as the woman that always has champagne in her purse, except for when I go to school. (laughs) Be careful what you wish for. (laughs) See, maybe it's meant to be. I lost my taste for wine, but I'm going to be a champagne person. Oh, God. Champs person. Okay. Oh, we can't afford that. So they were the the fun couple that everyone wanted to be around. Irene and Sam never had children, but they lived 39 blissful years together until 1980 when Sam passed away. Irene spent all of her time with her elderly mother after the passing of her husband, until 1985, when her mother also passed away. Irene Silverman was left with everything and nothing at the same time. I mean, she had this vast wealth, but she was alone. Everyone who was a companion to her is now gone. So it's it's pretty sad that, you know, she was used to throwing these lavish parties, but then when everyone would leave, she would still have Sam and her mother there with her. But now she had no one. So. And did they not have children? They didn't have children. Okay. It's it's not clear why or for what reason or if it was a medical reason or it was a personal choice, but they didn't have any children. Okay. So in order to fill the loneliness in her life, Irene began to throw more elaborate parties. And through her time within the wealthy New York City social circle and her time being a patron of the arts, she had friends who were wealthy stockbrokers and others who were struggling off-Broadway performers. But at Irene's house, they were all equal and equally as dazed by the former ballerina who would, even in her 70s, show her guests that she still had it and she would go on point whenever she pleased. Her parties and dinner parties were always well attended and very exciting events. But still, once all her guests had gone and her staff, who loved her so much, had finished cleaning up, Irene was left alone. She hated living in her five-story, $10 million townhouse all alone. I mean, that's it's, it's a massive townhouse, I have to say. Um, when you do like a size comparison, so 
because I was looking it up like in real estate in New York City, which is insanity. But this townhome was around 12,000 square feet, like 12,500 square feet. And it was five stories. So at this point, townhomes and like the brownstones on the Upper East Side had kind of all broken up, meaning that a family may have owned one building at one time, but then they started selling the floors separately. Like, oh, they're going to sell floors four and five and that becomes one apartment. So then they break up. So this is one of the only brownstones left in the 90s that one person owns. Okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying. I actually, uh, side note, but it's relevant. Um, there, uh, I, I delivered to actually a brownstone that's, uh, I, I mean, I think we'd consider it a brownstone. It's, uh, you could tell it used to be a multifamily house and then everything was tear, like they tore it down in order to, like inside, I mean, in order to build it into one massive house. Yeah. Um, and it's in the coolest area ever. Um, it's right off of the FDR Drive. It's like, it's called Sutton Place, but then Sutton Place turns into York Avenue. And all the houses that are nestled in these like, these dead ends, they're all the same. And they're absolutely beautiful. And you have to know that whoever lives there has so much money that you don't wouldn't even know they what to do They don't even with know it. what to do with it. Yeah. It's yeah. so cool. But you wouldn't expect that in that area there. Like, it's just weird. Well, that's the way I feel like New York City is, is that something that may look like nothing is... Yeah. A lot more wealth than anyone could ever comprehend. <laughs> it's crazy. But this house was was massive because one of the biggest townhomes that exist in New York City was um oh my god, this is gonna like show my age. P. Diddy? Like do we still call him that? P. Diddy, yeah. Like that's his name? Because I know he switched it like a million times. I mean I still refer to him as P. Diddy and I think most people do anyway. Okay. So. I, I mean I would still call him good. Puff Daddy, but that's no, a different don't do story. That. Um so he has one of the biggest townhomes or brownstones in New York City. And it's 12 stories. That's insane. 12 stories, but it's 16,000 square feet. This one's five stories and it's 12,000 square feet. Okay. So it shows its size. I mean, this thing is massive. But now Irene's living here all by herself. I mean, she does have a staff. She has 10 people who work for her, but they don't live there. They go home. Right. Um, And just so you know, her staff truly loved her so much they had been with her and also sam for a very long time and then um the children of the staff eventually start working also for them and she pays them really well like more than i could ever make as a teacher (laughs) so i mean i think that's really cool that she has like kind of taken in these people as her friends as well well. yeah and it it shows because i mean not not to put a label but sometimes that doesn't happen. That relationship with worker and, empl- and employer, that doesn't really happen too often. Oh, we're going to see that in this story. So I'm oh. glad you brought that oh, up. okay. Yeah. So eventually, Irene's going to come up with the idea, because obviously she's seeing it happen to the homes around her, to divide the house up. Well, the fourth and fifth floors anyway, she's going to divide into seven suites that can be rented out. This way, she could always be in good company. Irene was very particular about who she let rent in her home. She had to interview everyone and complete a background check. Even then, her leases were only signed one month at a time, so she would never be stuck with a house guest that she did not like or enjoy. Those who rented from her were extremely wealthy. Well, they would have to be to rent only a suite for $6,000. 
thousand dollars a month in 1997 is when she began doing this. That's insane. Six thousand dollars in 1997 for for a bedroom, <laughs> a bathroom. Hey, it's about location, you know. Oh no, it's true. Now, just to get into this townhouse, if you're unfamiliar with New York City real estate, it's a big friggin' deal, especially this townhouse, because its former owner was Norman Bailey Woolworth. So, I mean, you know that from the department stores. He, this is a pretty big, it's a historic building within the city because of the former owners of this house. And again, it was the largest townhouse on the Upper East Side. And it's located in the Lenox Hill section of the Upper East Side. And it's half a block. So where the townhouse lays, it's half a block to the left is Central Park. And I believe that's the East 65th location of Central Park. The street goes, opens right into the street of this townhouse. Yeah, it's 66th Street. Okay. It's at, Yeah, it's, it's right on the corner of uh, Fifth Avenue and 66. So it actually cuts through not only Central Park, but also Fifth Avenue, which stretches the whole length of all those really expensive homes. Right, because that's where she is. Because yeah. to the right of her is, is Fifth Ave and then... To the left is yeah, Central Park. You can go through 66 and it takes you mm-hmm. from the east side to the west side. And it leaves you over by uh, Central Park West. But this is some pretty serious, like that's a pretty good location for the city. Oh, it's a fantastic location, especially when you have money. Yes. And it makes you also look like, okay, it, it boosts your status when oh, you yeah. have a, when you could say, I live on East 65th Street. Like it's a pretty big deal. So people that were, up and coming and they were wealthy they would want to rent a a place here because they'd want to say like if you're applying for a job and if you have that's your address most likely going to get it also it's also good for the women who like the shop because you have Saks fifth you have tiffany's you have all of those uh, massive extremely expensive stores all on fifth avenue well all of my money would be going to my rent yeah so i it's not (laughs) happening (laughs) So one of those people in the summer of 1998 was a 23-year-old wealthy up-and-coming investment banker named Manny Guerin. Guerin was tall, good-looking, and he felt like claiming a home address on the Upper East Side was exactly what he needed to give himself an edge. When he heard that there was a suite open at 20 East 65th Street, he had to meet the woman that he had heard so much about, Irene Silverman. At this point, Irene was 82 years old, and when Guerin met her, he found her to be quite eccentric, but every bit as charming and delightful as everyone had promised. Guerin needed to turn on the charm himself because he had made a mistake. He didn't bring any of the paperwork that was needed for the lease application. When he sat down with Irene for the face-to-face meeting, he told her that he had heard about her and the opening from a mutual butcher that they shared. And this made Irene so happy. She loved the butcher. He was like family to her, as he had been close friends with her late husband. Irene liked Guerin right away. He was rich, young, handsome. He was just perfect for her famous dinner parties. When the young man mentioned that he did not have the paperwork ready for her regarding the background check, Irene was slightly put off. She said that she never allowed anyone to move in without background check being completed. And this is when Guerin told her that he was sorry, 
There had been a mix-up with his personal assistant, but to make up for it, he had the whole first month's rent in cash with him. She then took the time to really look at the man sitting in front of her. Irene Silverman was an eccentric old woman, but sometimes looks can be deceiving. She was a child of the Depression who worked herself quite literally to the bone to earn a living. She had come into wealth, but also had to hold her own in a very unforgiving social circle. She had lived in New York City at that point for 65 years, through the roughest times that the city had ever seen. She was business savvy and street smart. So she sat back and took in the situation in front of her. Guerin had been kind and courteous to her. He knew the same people she did. If the butcher knew him and mentioned the apartment to him, knowing how particular she was about the tenants that she kept, well, then that was a good sign. The suit he was wearing was expensive, and so were his shoes. And cash. That was something that was tempting to take. She wouldn't have to file that in her taxes for the year. And, as a child of the Depression, to Irene, cash was king. So she chose to accept Manny Guerin as a tenant, but he needed to hand his paperwork into her the next day. So everything that you're saying about her, I'm sure is true. And I just get this feeling right now that he is not who he says he is or that he's hiding something. I'm going to tell you why. Because everyone loves cash, right? He's being shady. He forgot it. His assistant... Now, the clothes thing, that is true. He must have money if he has clothes like that. But you never know. I'll put that off to the side for now. But as far as like the other stuff, I wouldn't trust this guy. I'd say, listen, how about this? Come back tomorrow and bring me your paperwork, and then we're good. Because not a lot of people offer that much cash right up front and just, just because. Yeah, there's, it's a little something, weird. there's something totally shady going on in this it's, moment. It's, it's, it's like he's trying to mask it with cash. Yeah. Whatever is stinking, you know, like something's up, something's fishy. The cash is the perfume. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, guys, let's take a break to hear from our sponsor of today's show, Best Fiends. So when you finish the latest true crime podcast on your list, you are always faced with the same dilemma that we all are. Now what? Well, you could go down a wormhole of research and discuss theories about theories with other armchair sleuths. But when your brain and browser tabs are full to capacity, it just may be time to take a break. And to do that, I love to clear a few levels on Best Fiends. All of our listeners know by now how much I love playing Best Fiends. I love the new challenges given every month and the ever-evolving and increasingly difficult levels. I am so close, but not yet to level 1000. I think at this point, I'm only just 50 levels away. So I will report back when I get to that game milestone. Best Fiends is an infamously impossible to put down puzzle game that's free to download. I love to get levels in when I'm waiting for dinner to cook or to unwind before I go to bed. Seriously, once you download Best Fiends, boredom won't stand a chance. More levels Events and challenges get added all the time. So play away. There's always one more level. With over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. 
So TCC listeners, download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Okay, let's get back to the show. So Guerin wasted no time moving his things in. The suite was fully furnished, so he only had his personal things and clothing to move in. That day, Irene checked in with him again about handing in his paperwork. And he told her that his personal assistant had misplaced the paperwork and he asked for a new copy, which she gave to him that day. However, Guerin did not hand in the paperwork to her the next day or even that week. But that was not the only thing that was unsettling Irene about her new tenant. He was breaking other rules as well. Irene, like I said, was very particular about who she let stay in her suites. She preferred people who were single. She had made a few exceptions for couples, but they were people that she had known for years. She didn't want anyone from the outside, even if they were family to the tenants, sleeping overnight in the suites. And this is because, first and foremost, she wanted single people because she wanted the noise level to stay low. And then she didn't want outside guests sleeping in because she wanted everyone to feel safe. She didn't want any outsiders in her home at night. I mean, don't forget, the first three floors are her own private residency. So she wants to feel safe, but she also wants the other tenants in the building to feel safe because we're talking about wealthy private people here. So that's why she had those rules in place. But Guerin was breaking this rule. Irene's housekeepers had all seen Guerin bring a woman up to the suite with him. And when the maids would knock on the door to clean his bathroom and take his laundry, he would always tell them to go away and that he didn't want to use their services. Even though it was a condition of the lease that the cleaning of the suite was to be maintained at least twice a month by her staff to ensure that everything was kept in good condition. And of course, this was a free service. So the staff said that when he would deny them and shut the door, that they could hear on the other side of the door that a woman was in there talking with him in the suite. So whoever this woman was, she was staying with Guerin. And obviously he's breaking the rule, and that's the reason why he doesn't want the housekeeping. Right, because then they're going to obviously go back and report you know, to Silverman about... The woman's clothing. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. <laughs> So after one incident of Irene seeing Guerin walk up the stairs with an older woman, she chose to confront him about the breaking of the rules. He told her that the woman that she had seen was his personal assistant, Eva. And this struck Irene as odd because the woman she had seen him with, and just as her staff had reported, had been an older woman who didn't seem like she would be Guerin's assistant at all. So he told Irene that, she should be happy that Eva was here because she was helping him with all of the paperwork that she needed for his background check. I mean, which is pretty ludicrous at this point. It doesn't take that long to get paperwork together and you don't need a personal assistant to help you. I mean, of course not. This is so bizarre. He's prolonging. He's the inevitable. He's I think he's lying. I really do. So Irene stayed strong in her rules and said that this woman, whoever she was, was not allowed to stay the night and that Guerin needed to start respecting the rules. After this incident, Guerin began avoiding Irene altogether. She heard only what he was up to from her staff. They said that he had made a complete 180 when it came to them. Now it seemed that he was always letting them into his suite and he would stay the whole time and he would try to befriend them. 
He would even seek them out during their breaks and talk to them. Recently, um, which would now put us about three weeks into his residency, he had been asking the staff strange questions about the house and Irene herself. Something about this man was making Irene uneasy, and she feared that she had made the wrong decision letting him stay in the house. She decided to check the security cameras that she had set up throughout the suites. Not inside the suites, but like in the hallway and on her three levels of residency. When she reviewed the footage with her house manager, they saw that Guerin had been snooping around every floor of the house, and he had also tried to get into the other suites. Really? Mm-hmm. So she didn't know exactly what he was trying to do, like what's his angle, but Irene knew that it wasn't good. She felt as if she could not call the police because she had accepted cash from him and she had never run a background check. So in reality, she felt as if she had been careless and that the law at this point was not on her side. So she called up the man that she paid as her property manager and told him that she needed him to get started on the eviction process. By this time, Guerin had been there for just about a month and he had not signed another lease. He had not paid her again, so for the following month, and he had not given her the required paperwork. But kicking someone out of an apartment in New York City is not as easy as you think it would be. Now, the laws are different all over the country, but New York City in particular is known for making it very difficult to evict someone. So if your tenant is no longer under a lease because it's a month-to-month lease or the lease ran out, by city law, they are still protected by the original lease terms if they've never vacated the premises. So in order to evict someone, the following process needs to be followed. So you must give a 30-day notice and the tenant must either A, owe rent or have been given a month's notice to move out. The notice must be provided in writing, and you must let the tenant know that they can contest the eviction in housing court. Now, if the tenant does try to contest the eviction in housing court, then they can remain in the property while this is going through the court system, and they do not have to pay rent during this time. I'm pretty sure that's what actually happened to my family when we leased... um... We rented out our apartment in uh, in, in, Queens. in Queens. Yeah, that, this is kind of what happened a little bit. I'm not a hundred percent on the facts, but yeah, it is pretty hard for that to happen. No, I remember that, and they destroyed the upstairs apartment. They like oh, painted yeah. it all black. Yeah, the the kid puts stickers all over the like walls and stuff. Yeah, it was pretty bad. She was writing on the walls with chalk and pens and stuff. Yeah, it was pretty. And bad. it wasn't like just like oh a mark. No, like it no, was, it was pretty aggressive. It was very uh, aggressive. Yeah. It's pretty, it was pretty bad. Pretty angry stuff. Um, so the fourth thing that you have to do is you must make three, three good faith efforts to hand deliver the notice. After three failed attempts, you're permitted to mail the notice or leave a copy at the residence. So this is what ends up taking a lot of time. In order for something to be a good faith effort to hand deliver a notice it's very difficult especially when the person who is renting from you is evasive so it's totally necessary to follow all of these steps because if a wrongful eviction is found your tenant can sue you which does happen quite a lot and some people 
because they know these laws and sometimes maybe a, a new landlord may not know these laws, they can really become professionals at doing this. I don't know if anyone has seen the um, most amazing movie ever. It's like one of my faves with Michael Keaton, um, Pacific Heights from 1990. If you have never seen that movie, it is primed on Amazon right now. Go enjoy. You're welcome. It's the 90s and it's prime. So good. Oh, yes, that is a good movie. That's such a great movie. <laughs> so Irene was thinking that maybe this is something that Guerin was planning on doing. So she followed every rule precisely and she documented it all so she could get the young man out and protect herself. I mean, because at this point, it seems like he's up to something. He's not just someone who's just not paying rent. Or is in a bad situation and can't pay rent. I mean, that's not what I'm saying. Obviously, what I'm referring to in this situation and in all of the situations I'm talking about is someone who's intentionally being malicious and not paying rent and not leaving the apartment. Of course, there's situations where people can't afford to pay rent and sometimes these laws would protect them. But this is someone who has malintent towards the landowner. I almost feel like he, and like you said, he knows the rules and has probably done this in the past. Right. Which is the premise of the movie. So good. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so on July 1st, Guerin was given the eviction notice. But even after this, he was hell-bent on staying. He and Irene also got into yelling matches on the first floor when they would run into each other. The woman would tell anyone who would listen how horrible she thought Guerin was and that he was a liar. She had talked to her butcher and the man had no idea who Guerin was. So he had lied about knowing the butcher, which is pretty interesting because that means he would have had to know not only that that man was Irene Silverman's butcher, but that he knew her well. Like, it's kind of creepy that he found that out. He had to have been there while she was talking to the butcher about her place being rented, trying to get people in there. Right. Like there's some weird snooping that went on for that information. On the 4th of July, Irene hosted a small dinner party, which was attended by some of her close personal friends. She told those in attendance that this man was clearly up to something and she didn't know what. But at the end of the month, he would have to legally be out of her life for good. And she couldn't wait for that to happen. The next day, Irene sat in her study on the second floor where she spent most of her time. And she called in her housekeeper, Marta Rivera. Rivera was the only staff member of the 10 that were employed by Irene that was there that day. The others were off for the holiday weekend. And many of the tenants were also away um, in the Hamptons, the Berkshires, Martha's Vineyard, the Rich Playgrounds. The Rich Playgrounds. (laughs) Um, She asked Rivera if she could run a few errands for her, and the woman agreed to do so. She left the house at around 11.45 a.m., and before she departed, she again checked in with Irene just to make sure that everything that Irene needed was on the list, because once she came back from running errands, she was going to leave for the day. So she just wanted to make sure, I got to get you everything you need. Is this right? And when she left Irene, she was again still in the study on the second floor. When Rivera returned to the house, she noticed that things were really quiet. She went to the study, but Irene was not there. She checked all of the other places that she would normally be, and she was nowhere to be found. She ran throughout the rooms on all five floors. Irene was not in the house. 
She was incapable of leaving the house on her own because of her age, so the housekeeper knew that she wouldn't have just left. No one was supposed to be by that day either, so her disappearance had made no sense. Scared and confused, the woman called the police. Rivera then called all the other members of the staff and told them that something had happened. They all came rushing to the house to try and help Rivera figure out just what had taken place. That's really sad, so they can't find her right now. No, and she can't just get up and leave, and it's clear that she didn't, so something went down. Check the cameras. When the police arrived, they took statements from everyone there. They confirmed to the officers that all of Irene's things were still in her room, and there were items that she would never leave the house without. They asked about her mental competency, and the staff stated that although her physical ailments were catching up to her, that mentally Irene was still sharp as a tack. It was clear that she had not planned to leave. Next, the police asked the question that they always do. Does Irene Silverman have any enemies? Well, about five weeks prior, everyone would have said, not one person on the planet, but now... All of their minds turned to the newest tenant, Manny Guerin. The police decided that they wanted to talk to Irene's problem tenant. But when the staff took them upstairs to his suite, there was no answer at the door. Which was odd because the young professional was always home. After minutes of knocking, the officer asked Rivera to open the suite door with the set of master keys that she had. When they walked into the suite, they noticed right away that all of Guerin's things were gone. The only things that were in the apartment were a black garbage bag, duct tape, the packing from a clear shower liner. I mean, come on, you might as well be found with like the dye on your hands with this one here. (laughs) Yeah, really? And in addition to that, one officer went into the bathroom, and when he came out, he noted that the shower and sink were both wet with water. So that meant that Guerin must have just left. The city was canvassed looking for them both. This was a big story. An adored millionaire socialite and her cunning new tenant missing. Had she been kidnapped? Murdered? It was like the whole city stopped and every officer in the NYPD was on the lookout for both Irene Silverman and Manny Guerin. The searching went on for three days when the lead detective in the case got a phone call from the New York City office of the FBI. An agent had been watching television and saw a picture of the man that they were looking for in connection with the Silverman disappearance. And the man, Manny Guerin, looked exactly like the man that they had arrested two days earlier. However, he was arrested for a different crime. And Manny Guerin was not his name. His name was Kenneth Kimes. And they had been looking for him for a month. I I knew it. I knew that he was hiding his identity. Why why else would you not give a background check? Like, that, that, that makes sense, right? I mean... Right, and then the whole thing is, too, like, they had been looking for him for a month, and Manny Guerin wasn't leaving his apartment. So, like, it made sense. Like, he was hiding, basically, in plain sight. Yeah, but now I want to know even further, what? how did he have that money? That's a good question. So, in addition to his arrest, a woman was arrested with him. Oh, okay. The FBI believed that Kimes had been working with her. 
The two were partners in crime. Later, Irene's staff would identify the woman that he had been arrested with as the woman who had been sneaking into the suite. The elderly woman. The assistant. The assistant. Okay. Only she was not his assistant. She was his mother. Oh. Sante Kimes. Okay. The detectives working Irene's case were soon going to find out that in order to know what happened to Irene Silverman or where she was, they were going to have to get acquainted with two cold-blooded criminals, Kenneth and Sante Kimes. They were horrible people. So let's get into their past and just who they are, because up until now, they had been posing as other people. That is so scary. That's terrifying. In 1975, Sante Kimes had already been married to her husband, Kenneth Kimes, for a few years when they had a son who they named Kenneth Kimes Jr. Sante was 41 years old and she had an 11-year-old son from another marriage. This was also not a first marriage for Kenneth either. He was a millionaire many times over and he knew that his second wife was into him only for his money. And those who knew the couple stated that this didn't seem to bother Kenneth all too much. I mean, at this point, Kenneth Kimes is actually Sante's third husband. And Kenneth Kimes was a wealthy Newport Beach, California motel tycoon who was worth about $20 million when Sante met him. He liked having this beautiful younger woman around and after their marriage... He liked having this beautiful young woman around and he seemed to be captivated by her and not to care too much that she was only into him for money. Hey, sometimes it just goes that way, you know? Yeah. I mean, it just does. But Sante kind of changed after they got married. And that larger than life, loud personality that Kenneth Kimes loved when they were dating was something that grated on him during their marriage. That's unfortunate. Well, because physical attraction isn't what lasts. That's true. So I think it's pretty interesting here because you have a juxtaposition of two relationships. That between Irene and Sam Silverman, that was, it was true love. I mean, they had a companionship and a partnership with each other, but there happened to be money involved. Like it was for the right reasons. Right. And then here you have the opposite for the artificial reasons this couple gets together. It's that's just what happens. It's both sides, right? It can yeah. go either way sometimes. So Sante's first son had stated in several interviews that his mother had always been a bit of a scammer. She was always doing something that would get them money. Things like insurance, fraud, arson, robbery. And it seemed like Kenneth was starting to learn just who his wife was. Another thing that became a point of contention in the couple's marriage was how Sante treated Kenneth Jr. She was very demanding of him and expected high performance in the private schools that he was sent to, as well as in his piano and sports lessons. She was very, very controlling of both her son and her husband's lives. But his son's misery was not the only thing that Kenneth Sr. chose to turn a blind eye to during his marriage to Sante. He also allowed his wife to turn his million-dollar mansion into a house of horrors. For 10 years, 
from the time that they needed a nanny to take care of Kenneth Jr. until their arrest in 1986, the family had been kidnapping and abusing Mexican women to work in their house in Newport Beach. So it's interesting because we have another opposite here. Whereas Irene Silverman loved her staff. They were her family. They were her best friends. This is what Sante did to her staff. And it's atrocious. Well, could you really call it staff? No, slaves. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because, I mean, yeah. uh, she's kidnapping these people. They were her victims. That's horrible. Did he Did he partake in this? Or he he was kind of there and just didn't do it. He turned about a blind it. eye to yeah, it. that's just The same bad. way that he turned a blind eye to the abuse of his son as well. According to the trial that was held against Sante and Kenneth Kime Sr., the couple had been traveling to Mexico to recruit young women to work as their maids and nannies. However, then when they would get to the United States and move them into their mansion, she would scream at them for not doing things the way that she liked them to be done. She would hit them and refuse to pay them. Because of how they were treated, they were not allowed to have contact with their families. She was a monster. Eventually, a former maid pressed charges against the Kimes family. Once those charges were filed, other women in Mexico and the United States came forward and joined the lawsuit. The Kimes were charged federally for violating anti-slavery laws. That's insane. That is insanity. In the three and a half years of a podcast, it's the first time. Yeah, I've first never time. heard of such a thing before. I mean, you got it. Like, this is human trafficking. It is. It actually is. And it's, it's, it's disgusting. I don't even know what to say to that. You know, like that is actually, yeah. it's, br- it's brutality right there. Like it, it shows that there is no heart there when it comes to this woman. And it also shows that the men in her life are doing anything for her. Yeah. So knowing that they were not going to be able to avoid punishment, Sante and Ken Sr. took a plea deal that was offered to them by the prosecutors. They had to pay a $70,000 fine for the missed wages of the women. Kenneth was to be placed on two years probation, and Sante had to serve three years in a federal prison. This was a strange time for the family. For the first time, Kenneth Sr. got to spend a prolonged amount of time with his 10-year-old son without the influence of his mother. With his mother in prison, Kenneth Jr. had a break from his hectic life. He didn't have to go to the piano and tennis lessons that he hated, didn't have to attend the tutoring sessions that lasted hours, in addition to the mandatory four hours that she made him study every single day. He felt like he was finally free to be a child. At the same time, Kenneth Sr. was seeing how negative his wife's energy was and how bad of an influence that she had been on him and his son. Sometimes sometimes when you remove that person out, everyone gets to really flourish because that's what really is starting to happen. Everyone's opening their eyes to what's really happening here and how, what kind of control she had over the son and the husband. Right. Well, I mean, and I, that's... I wish it could be like a, a nice story like that, but I mean, it's not because you have to think that this man had to have been damaged to some degree to allow this woman to come in do this, take his money, abuse his son, 
turn his house into a human trafficking ring where women are being physically abused in front of him and not paid, kept as slaves. And, and you have to think, and, and, and for what reason? That's I mean, that, that the worst part is... She needed to dominate control. She, her whole life was a scam. And I feel like she needed to always get something over on someone. She always needed to, to be doing a scam. And now that she had money, she didn't need to do scams to get money. She wanted to do scams to do something else. For control, for power? Yes. It's pretty sad. So it's also during this time when Sante is in jail that Kenneth Sr. begins to drink heavily. He grew close with his son and convinced him that all of their problems had been because of Sante. And that it should be him and his son against the world. Because she, meaning his mother, would only bring them to an early grave. So when Sante returned from prison in 1989, she came home to a different son than she had left. Kenneth Jr. was resentful and rebellious, as he had spent the last four years with a bitter, alcoholic father. However, his father was a completely different story. It turned out that all of his hard talk against Sante was nothing but. He quickly returned to allowing her to run the show. This complicated and toxic family dynamic existed for five years and was brought to an end in 1994 only because Kenneth Kimes Sr. had died. Kenneth Jr. was crushed by the death of his father. And because of their shared grief, and the fact that they only had each other at that point, he and his mother reconciled. They were going to then be the ones who took on the world together. Kenneth Jr. and Sante expected to inherit money from Kenneth Sr. after his death. But when they read the will, Sante found out that their lavish spending and the cost of their defense had squandered the once $20 million fortune. But of course, Sante had a backup plan. And this time, the partner in her messed up crimes would be her son. So after the Kimes had been convicted on federal slavery and kidnapping charges, this opened the door for civil lawsuits from the former women who had been victimized at the hands of the sadistic couple. So that $70,000 that they were ordered to pay that was just the specific wages that had been agreed to by the couple and the women that were hired by the couple. So that would kind of write the fact that it was slave labor. But now the women can sue and it, it helps that they were given a guilty verdict or that they, they pled guilty to those crimes because now the women could s sue them for damages. Oh, yeah, 100%. So they can sue them for a lot of money. But Sante, always the scammer, in order to protect her assets, the woman transferred the title of a Las Vegas home, a very expensive home, to an old friend of the couple, David Kasdan. Once some schemes that Kenneth Jr. and Sante dreamed up did not pan out, and we'll get into those later on in the podcast, Sante chose to try and get money from the Las Vegas property. So in December of 1997, she took a loan out on the house for $280,000 by forging David Kasdan's name. 
She pocketed the cash and again forging Kasdan's signature, she signed the house over to another friend and insured the house for $500,000. Nine days after filing the policy, the house was burned to the ground. Nothing remained and arson was suspected by the Las Vegas authorities. Kasdan received papers in the mail about the transactions and he reported that all of the signatures that were signed were a fake. Kenneth and another associate who had helped them in other small cons before, his name was Sean Little, were going to talk to Kasdan to try and fix and figure out the misunderstanding that Sante said had happened. It was March 13th, 1998. While he was waiting outside of the house and Kenneth was inside talking to Kasdan, Sean Little heard a pop go off and this prompted him to go inside the house. He saw that Kasdan had been shot and was bleeding out on the floor. They wrapped his body in plastic and put him in the trunk of the man's Jaguar. Kenneth drove his car and Little drove the Jaguar with the body still in the trunk to LAX. They dumped the body in a dumpster at the airport and returned to Sante's rented home in Bel Air. Little said that on the way back to the rented Bel Air home, that Kenneth stopped to buy his mother flowers. Ooh, that's weird. Yeah, that's really weird. That's so weird. And you know, why would they do it on an airport? There's cameras. Well, no. I mean, they did it in like a, a secret part of the airport. The okay. body hadn't wasn't found until a long time later. So they obviously knew what they were doing and they knew where to stash the body. They're crazy. Yes. They actually are. And this is all because this guy was just kind of like raising red flags like, hey, there's something wrong here. So it seems like they'll stop at nothing to cover up their crimes. Well, they can only go so far before you get caught. The mother and son duo left Bel Air and were headed to Florida for their next planned con until they somehow heard about Irene Silverman. It is still unclear where they heard about her from. But lucky for law enforcement, Sean Little had been arrested on separate charges for a crime that had nothing to do with the Kimeses. In order to protect himself from a very long sentence, he told the police about what had happened to David Kasdan and where they would be able to find the murderers. New York City. The FBI knew where the Kimes were, but in order to get them, they needed a little help. So they called up Sean Little. Little called Sante, who he knew was in the city. He told her he was looking to get into a crime because he needed some money. She did mention something vaguely to him about a con that she was currently working. She said she could use him and that they should meet up to talk about it. They planned to meet up on the day of July 5th, the same day Irene went missing. Sante was supposed to meet Little at a hotel bar but she was hours late. Finally, she called the bar and let him know that she would be late because of car trouble, she said. But Little reported to the FBI agents who were also waiting in the bar that it did, she did seem really flustered. Eventually, two hours later, Sante showed up, but she was alone. Her son was nowhere to be found. The FBI wanted to arrest them both together, so they held off on making the arrest. Little actually had to go three hours of hanging out with Sante until Kenneth finally met up with them. 
Oh, it must have been pretty torturous, right? Three hours undercover, <laughs> like trying to play it cool. I mean, this guy's a criminal too, though. I mean, think about it. He pretty casually wrapped that body up in plastic wrap and put it. Yeah, I mean, he's no angel And either. drove it, yeah. <laughs> so Kenneth finally meets up with them. And as soon as he does, the FBI moved in and arrested them. It was 11 p.m. on July 5th. The search for Irene Silverman had only just begun. Once the Kimeses were arrested, their stolen Lincoln was searched. Now, the Lincoln, that's a pretty interesting story, too, because that was a con. When they were living in Bel Air and they needed a way to travel, um, they first were going to go to Florida, but they ended up going to New York City. They had called a dealership and said that they wanted to have a brand new car delivered to them and that they would give a check there to the man who delivered it. And when... (laughs) And then when the man got there, he was told by the the Kimeses, oh, we gave the check to the dealership. So the man believed them and they they drove off in a brand new Lincoln. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Isn't that insane what these people get away with? It is. You know what? And that's why there's so many rules now with everything because to avoid people like this, yeah, to walk off the showroom floor with a car, just... No, not, not even. No, it was delivered to their house. Oh, delivered to the house. That's right. So, yeah, just, oh, oh thanks. Here's yeah. our new car. <laughs> oh, my God. So, the car was searched, and even more things were found inside the Lincoln. There was a 9mm Glock, date rape drugs, a notebook in which notes were scribbled that said, get her social security number and a rope. Like, really? You have to write that down? <laughs> Step one. <laughs> Step one into kidnapping Irene Silverman. Like what? You might as well have Grab just written that. Security number. <laughs> Jesus. There was also a six-foot black canvas bag, and most damning of all was paperwork regarding the brownstone in the city. When one of their agents made the connection between the criminals and the NYPD's missing persons case, everything seemed to come together. It was clear that Irene Silverman was the final victim of the Kimeses. The intentions were now clear. They were going to weasel their way into the townhome on the Upper East Side, which was worth around $10 million. Kenneth would just have to charm his way in, and then he would forge the signature of Irene Silverman before she passed away, or they killed her, whichever came first. However, she had caught on to their game and was not being charmed in any way by Kenneth. In fact, she was evicting him. And before she could, the Kimeses followed through with their sinister plan. The mother and son would face two separate trials, one for the murder of Irene Silverman and another for the murder of David Kasdan. Early in the buildup of the first case, both Kenneth and Sante denied any involvement in the disappearance of Irene Silverman. Kenneth, in particular, is going to state that if there's no body there can be no crime. But the prosecution felt differently. They thought they had a strong case against the two. And after they were arrested, even more documents were found in a hotel room that they had shared. They had Irene Silverman's passport, as well as forged documents where Irene signed over the entire townhouse to Sante Kimes and her son, Kenneth Kimes Jr. I mean, that's pretty insane. Yeah, they just wanted to, like, forge as as many, like, checks and paperwork as possible to get Mm -hmm. money and to inherit things. Oh, yeah. Like, that was the plan from the start. But you know what the problem is, though? 
they thought that just by him, like... Being a charmer. Trying to charm his way in, yeah. Like, he stopped, though. Because once he got through the door, she wanted to know who he was and what the background check was. So this plan was going to fail from the start. Well, you can tell that their plan definitely changed. At first, it seemed like he was going to try and charm her. And then when she seemed to kind of figure out something was wrong, halfway through, if you noticed, it changed. And he seemed to start talking to the staff more. So it seemed like he was then trying to win over the staff. So it would be an easy transition takeover. Yeah. Like, I feel like they were in over their heads with this one. That it was just a little too much because so many people and this is what they can't they couldn't have foreseen is that Irene Silverman was so good to her to the people around her, her friends, her staff. Everyone loved her so much that she was so supported and no one they protected her. Yeah, they thought going into this that this was an a lonely old woman, lonely old woman that they could just screw over. And that's what they thought. Yeah, it is what they thought. And, you know, unfortunately, harm does come to Irene Silverman, but they get taken down. Which is always good. So after 19 months of preparation, the trial for the murder of Irene Silverman began. And, I mean, this is something that is pretty rare because not only is there no body, it's only a disappearance. There's not even a crime scene. There's no crime scene, there's no body, but you have to think they're probably basing their evidence on all the scheming, the the things being written down, what they did, the yeah. fact that they had this person undercover for three plus hours. I mean, that's yeah. that's insane right there. There had to have been talks, right? You know. Well, it's really difficult because the one thing they can't bring up is anything with the David Kasdan case because that was a separate case altogether. Right. And it. And it was kind of everything was happening adjacently. So it was difficult that they couldn't bring up the Kasdan murder because that would be so super helpful. But again, there is no such thing as a jury who's not going to know about what's happening because this was all over the news. So it was really hard to find an unbiased jury. Everyone was pretty informed. Both Kenneth and his mother were found guilty of the murder of Irene Silverman. In addition to a guilty murder verdict they were also found guilty of robbery burglary forgery and criminal possession of a weapon so the jury totally went guilty on this one they were like it is so obvious and cruel what you plan to do the one thing that was allowed to be entered into the trial was like character statements and it was the the civil lawsuits that the former victims of sante kimes had brought against her they were allowed to discuss that so i think that really helped as well set up who this woman was and how much of a monster she was right i mean that would be the best thing to do right to show how you know how bad she is yeah i mean that's really all you need to know totally right and if you have a gun i mean you know what your intentions are people just don't carry a gun that's probably unregistered most likely it was the illegal possession yeah. of it. so i mean if you have an unregistered weapon you know what you're going to try to do is either intimidation or you're going to use it to kill somebody i mean yeah. that's really <laughs> you know i feel like this one's kind of easier than others to say listen you definitely killed somebody the circumstantial evidence is is pretty damn and then all the stuff in the apartment yeah the suite sante was sentenced to 120 years and kenneth received 125 years 
After the sentencing, they were extradited to California, where they stood trial for the murder of David Kasdan. However, this trial was different. The death penalty was on the table, and because it was Kenneth that had pulled the trigger, and Sean Little was a witness to that murder, it seemed likely that Kenneth would face death here. To avoid the death penalty, Kenneth agreed to reveal information about what happened to Irene Silverman. They will both, in addition to the 120 and 125-year sentences for Irene, get life sentences without the possibility of parole in the death of David Kasdan. Wow. Okay. Yes. So, but in order to take the death penalty off the table, Kenneth said he would explain what happened to Irene. And he did. He said on July 5th, after Marta Rivera had left the house, that he lured Irene up to his room by telling her that he had finally had paperwork that at this point would have made the eviction process easier. So as she was walking into the apartment with Kenneth, Sante attacked Irene from behind and tased her in the neck. They both dragged her incapacitated body into the suite. Sante told Kenneth that she was not dead yet and that he would have to strangle her. She gave him a cord to do it. And as her 23-year-old son strangled a helpless woman, she cheered him on. Once Irene was no longer breathing, they placed her body in a duffel bag, and she was dumped in a landfill off of the New Jersey Turnpike. The investigators tried to look for her, but her body has never been recovered. Oh, no. That's so sad. That's really sad. It has later come out that the Kimes may have also been involved with another death, that of banker Saeed Balil Ahmed in the Bahamas. Now, this is really complicated. Um, They've never been tried for this. This is something that Kenneth confessed to, but Sante still denies, and there's no evidence linking them. The evidence is circumstantial, but it's so much less circumstantial than that of Irene Silverman. So I'll I'll get into it a little bit. Um, It was determined that the Kimes had money in a bank in the Bahamas, the Gulf Union Bank. And the reason why we know that they were they had this money is because the bank actually liquidated um, because it had to fold in. I believe it was 2013. So mail was sent to Sante Kimes to say, like, basically, like, your money no longer exists anymore. So this was money that they were hiding from the United States authorities. Oh, wow. Okay. And that money amounted to $856,000 in the bank. Now, This $856,000 was spread out over three accounts in the names of Sante herself, her deceased husband, and Kimes Motel, a company that after the death of her husband was in the ownership of Sante. Now, there were some interesting things that were happening with these bank accounts, and this is after 1996. So this is after the death of Kenneth Kimes Sr., So it seems like the first move before they did the shady stuff with the house and David Kasdan, it seemed like her and Kenneth Jr. tried to go to the Bahamas and take this money out. Okay. But they weren't able to do so. 
Because it does get really complicated when a spouse dies, but their name was the only one on a bank account. There's things you have to prove. What you have to prove death. And the reason why Sante Kimes couldn't do this is because she was still using her deceased husband's credit cards. She was racking them up. Okay. So Ahmed was the one who was tasked with looking into the irregularities of the Kimes banking situation in 1996. And when he started to ask too many questions of the mother and son, Kenneth revealed while on the stand testifying against his mother during the murder trial of David Kasdan that um, Sante had instructed him to drug the 55-year-old man with date rape drug, which was found on their persons during the arrest, and then drown him in the bathtub. The man's body was then dumped into the Caribbean Sea, and the two had always been suspects in Ahmed's murder, but there was never enough evidence to convict them. Sante, of course, still denies this, but this is what Kenneth said under oath, confessing to... Because really what happened was... They were upset. Like, he did say what happened to Irene, but they never found her body. So they're like, you could still be lying to us. Give us something else. Right. And this is when he gave the murder, the third murder. It's a possibility. I guess it's a possibility, but there's no... Well, Saeed Ahmed's family now is also left without any answers. Right. Well, if only one person is agreeing to it that it even happened, I mean... I don't know. But the details are there, and they did have date rape drug on them when they were arrested. There's and, also a motive. Yeah, like, I'm not going to put anything past a woman who is a human trafficker. That is true. She's that is true. insane. So, I mean, this case totally captivated the nation because it's so bizarre. And they also did a media circuit before their trials were taking place. Like... Sante and Kenneth Kimes are going to appear on Larry King. They they do a 60 Minutes episode, but the 60 Minutes episode is totally bizarre. The two of them are holding hands the whole time. Um, Kenneth Kimes is saying how smart his mother is and how physically attractive and beautiful she is. It's very uncomfortable. And their lawyers kept stopping the interview, like saying they couldn't answer questions. So it was very choppy and strange interview for 60 Minutes. So that was bizarre. And um, also, at one point, Kenneth Kimes is going to snap at a reporter because his mother, this is like in the middle, right after the Irene Silverman case, where they were going to be extradited then to California. And Kenneth Kimes is saying, my mom shouldn't be charged with David Kasdan's murder because I murdered him. But in California, if you are going to plot someone's murder you can also be charged with first degree murder okay so that's why she was being extradited and charged with murder as well so he's going to hold a reporter hostage with a pen to her neck because she was doing an interview with him and like his thing was don't send my mom to california well they did (laughs) and and they were able to control the situation but i mean i mean there was so much happening that it was like 
a new new news story every day with this mother and son which is also so bizarre because like there are just so many psychological issues going on here freud (laughs) would have had a field day it's really hard to like navigate (laughs) their relationship and to like figure this out because in a way i do feel a little bad for the son and the only reason why is because oh i should say i should clarify as a kid i feel bad for him because he had to grow up with a mother like that yeah and how how because that's when he was broken as a child oh yeah so i feel bad for him as a child i I just like he was never given a fair shot never he was growing up watching his nannies being physically abused not paid to take it and to take care of him and then also just all the other things that he was either meant to watch that the mother did on top of that um also um kind of kind of like forced to like take part in the physical, the physical, you know, the physicality of it all too. Like by, you know, to to, to for your mother at twenty three to tell you, yeah, 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 go ahead, keep strangling her. Like, yeah, that's crazy. I think if there was ever a case of someone not knowing truly the difference between right and wrong, it would be Kenneth Kimes Jr. because he was never taught what was right. What was modeled for him was only what was wrong. Because even when he kind of did have this new relationship with his father and that breakthrough it was also built on the fact that your mother's evil your mother's like it was never he was always being manipulated but he also did choose to commit murder and i feel like that is just something that instinctively you know is wrong also to take advantage of irene silverman to drown a a incapacitated man in a bathtub like these are things that one inherently is supposed to know is is oh, right and yeah, wrong. Yeah, one hundred percent. I just think it's it sucks that this kid grew up from the start. Oh yeah, he was broken. doomed. He, he was, was doomed, doomed to, from the start of his life. That's the that's that's the worst part about it all. It's really sad because there. I I you know if you think about it, if this kid lived a normal life and his mother wasn't in the picture, even let's just say you one would say some of these murders probably wouldn't even or things wouldn't even happen he might have had a fighting chance yeah, yeah. could have had a fighting chance here i think she would have found another partner in crime oh, yeah. true true like a bonnie and clyde situation yeah something like you know what this was called mommy and clyde oh god yeah oh my god it's so uncomfortable even hearing him describe how he feels like his mother is physically attractive like bile build in your throat it's so disgusting <laughs> it's a little weird yeah very weird <laughs> so sante kimes does die in prison in may of 2014 in new york she was still you know facing time for the 120 years for the death of irene silverman and right now kenneth kimes is in california they wanted to kind of keep them separate which is a good idea those people should be on opposite sides of the country oh yeah all right, so before we go, that was a that was a crazy one. Um, we want to thank our new patrons um, who joined us on Patreon to get ad-free episodes and extra episodes per month. So we want to join and thank Miranda Rumsey, Michelle Mercier, Esmeralda Garibay, Joy Lewis, Isla Heckel, Annie Falconer went up from 5 to $10. Thank you. Thank you. Erie Ava. Mary King pledged $20. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Mary. Angela Fisk. Angela Fisk was a, a patron in the past, so welcome back, Angela. Welcome we back. appreciate it. Karen Burnett, Danielle, Chelsea Watson, Whitney Thor, Destiny Esper, Ashley Shannon, 
Linnell Landon went from five to ten dollars. Thank you for upping that pledge. Andrea Russell, Mindy Eastwood, Danae Gore, and Anthony also upped his pledge five to ten. And finally, Beth McKenzie. Thank you guys so much, and we hope you enjoy being a part of the Patreon family that we have. Um, if you want to join Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash true crime couple. And we'll be back in two weeks, guys. See ya. Bye, guys.